Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes-Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView and your host today, Friday, February 4th, 2022. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter, as well as listen to our podcast, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Substack. You can also find past podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all of the usual places. My guest today for our 25th episode is Yunjin Huang. Dr. Huang is a Senior Fellow for Global Health at the Council on Foreign Relations. He is Professor and Director of Global Health Studies at Seton Hall University School of Diplomacy and International Relations, where he developed the first academic concentration among U.S. international affairs schools that explicitly addresses the security and foreign policy aspects of health issues. Dr. Huang has written extensively on China and global health. He's the author of Governing Health in Contemporary China in 2013 and Toxic Politics, China's Environmental Health Crisis and its Challenge to the Chinese State in 2020. He has also published numerous reports, journal articles, and book chapters. He's one of the first people who has really explored the link between political health and public health in China. And I think that same link exists in all countries, as we found recently due to the pandemic. Uh, Yanjung, welcome to the Hale Report. I think it is really fitting that we are meeting today on the very first day of the Beijing Olympics. How do you think things will go? And what impact will the Olympics have on China's sense of itself as a rising power? What is different because of the pandemic? Well, thanks, Lyrics, for having me. It was really a pleasure uh, to uh, speak with you on this uh, first um, week of the Chinese New Year. And uh, what has to um, the China's um, zero COVID strategy during the Olympics I think so far they have been doing well. They have certainly a very fabulous opening uh, event. Uh, and so far, you know, even though there seems to be increasing infections being detected right uh, before they enter the bubble, uh, the uh, uh, so far we haven't had any reports of any major outbreaks right either within the bubble or in other parts of China. So I think, you know, the, one of the reasons China wants to proceed with the Olympics, even with right, the arrival of the highly transmissible Omicron variant, is that it could, if they're successful, right, in terms of containing the spread of the new variant, they could send a strong signal, right, to the world, right? You guys by the, uh, <laughs> defeated by the virus, but we are the only winner. Right? Uh, so it sort of can showcase not just China's zero COVID strategy, but also demonstrate how resilient the Chinese state is. Right, exactly. If you've listened to my other podcasts, you'll know that I always ask my guests what it was that inspired them to follow their chosen careers. How did you first become interested in global health and in its structure and governance? 
Great question. <laughs> um, you, know, you know, I was trained not as epidemiologist or public health expert. I was trained as a political scientist to be accurate, a China expert. I mean, I was studying at the alma mater. At <laughs> University of Chicago, right. As <laughs> with the professors, you know, like Dali Yang, you know, I'm sure, you know, and then Dan Zhou. Uh, the later uh, professor at the, the uh, political science department, U of C. But my dissertation topic was on the health politics in post-war China. And this is sort of like a follow-up study of uh, Professor Mike Lampton's research. Right. You know, his dissertation was uh, uh, many, many years ago was on the um, politics of medicine, right? The morals China. So I said, my study was basically built up on his, but focused on the health politics in post-moral China. Uh, so, that, so that sort of noted my interest on health politics in China. And then after graduation, you know, I was exposed to this global health studies. You know, that was you know, basically a very small community at right. that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's basically like uh, everybody knows everybody. <laughs> the community, especially when you talk about examining health issues from a governance, you know, national security, you know, foreign policy perspective, you know, this is uh, uh, basically a bunch of political scientists were working on that. You know, so, you know, that also expand my intellectual horizon, right, uh, how to basically study health issues by right, uh, uh, using the knowledge, right, of what I learned as a political scientist, right. Uh, so, you know, this is the, um, uh, that's why now I have this bifurcated interest, right, uh, right. Interest Chinese politics, U.S.-China relations, on the one hand, in the meantime, global health governance, global health diplomacy, on the other. You know, I asked the same question of Liz Economy, our mutual friend, and uh, one topic that, that came up is, how does this community of all of us as China watchers uh, maintain our contacts with China, given that it's been closed off for so long? Are you able to travel back and forth? Do you see this as a, as a real uh, uh, problem for anyone in our field going forward or young people who are just starting to do this? How can they go and study in China? Well, I think it is very important right, to have you know, that uh, um, exchange right, between people, you know, scholars in China and the United States, the exchange views by ideas, uh, but unfortunately by that uh, sort of exchange was disrupted, you know, uh, in, uh, after 2017, maybe 18. Uh, and of course, by the, during the COVID pandemic, you know, where you have all these invisible wars, right, that, that uh, make it difficult for people to travel, right, between the two countries. I haven't, uh, you know, visited China for more than two years now, you know. I think this is really hurting our study uh, uh, on China, you know, uh, and certainly might also for scholars in China, I believe, because you know this lack of exchange uh, also sort of uh, um, uh, nurtures, you know, that uh, this this I would say doesn't help in terms of 
clarifying the misunderstandings, you know, that in a way it uh, encouraged the spread of, you know, this disinformation, you know, that uh, 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 strengthened the mistrust between the two nations. Absolutely. Now, uh, you've written about in all of this, um, too, based on China's zero tolerance policy, you've written about the balance between political stability within China and opening up to the outside world. How do you think, where is that going? Your article in Foreign Affairs, I highly recommend to everyone because it really gives you the understanding of what China is facing. Uh, You say that China is the most susceptible uh, to COVID of any country in the world now. How do Chinese officials expect to handle this and maintain their ties with the outside world? Well, <laughs> I think well, they're, they're certainly they're very proud of you know what they have achieved, right? Because you know, thanks to that zero COVID strategy, right, China maintained extremely low level of infection, right? If you talk about the number of deaths, it's like uh, since May two thousand twenty. I think there now the recent data is that only three by right, people in China died of uh, COVID nineteen compared to more than eight hundred thousand right, in this country here. Right? Uh, but in the meantime, I think you know this you, this invisible wars instituted in between China and the rest of the world also led them you know to develop this. I think uh, distorted understanding and what is going on outside, right? Because all they learn about how miserable, you know, how dismal uh, uh, the situation is in other countries, you know, uh, such as the United States, you know. But uh, I think they fail to recognize, you know, to, or to develop a more balanced, right, view, you know, how you know those other countries, you know, handle COVID nineteen. Uh, pandemics, including how actually the ordinary people, right, uh, what they actually feel, you know, have, you know, when they are handling the COVID nineteen pandemic. So when you know, is talk to the ordinary, ordinary Chinese, right, uh, uh, in the country, right, all you were told, oh, you got, you guys got to be very careful, right, because that the variant, uh, that virus is very dangerous. You know, I heard, I saw from TV, you know, how, you know, the terrible, the situation there uh, in the United States, you know. So, you know, I, I think, again, by that uh, sort of uh, feel of having a larger out- nationwide outbreak, right, like the United States, uh, sort of also justify the continuation of that zero COVID strategy. Uh, but uh, you know, this is not good, right, for China to exit from that strategy. You know, which you know, of course, they have to do that uh, sooner or later. What does that look like? What, how will we know that that's happening? And how could you do it possibly on a gradual basis and end zero tolerance? Well, that is a good question. I think, uh, you know, as we, you, you mentioned, how vulnerable the country is. You know, the, you know, our rough estimate is that only a fraction of 1% of the Chinese population have prior infection right, to COVID-19, you know, I would say probably 0.15%, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, 
And of course, by the, the China now have 86% population fully vaccinated, right? Uh, but, but the thing is that the, you know, their, the efficacy rate of their vaccines is much bigger problem, right? There uh, seems to be, uh, um, well, we don't have this nationwide data, but this anecdotal evidence seems to suggest, right, that many people now, you know, simply well, uh, no longer have antibodies right, uh, uh, in their bodies. Uh, the, 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 uh, that's why Guan Yi, right, the leading virologist, right, there in China is calling for, you know, an antibody test, right, in the country. Um, so this, you know, basically most of the people are very vulnerable right, to uh, the outbreak. But it is precisely right that that the prospect, right, that you having, you know, an Omicron tsunami, right, the, <laughs> engulfing entire country, that provides strong incentives for the policymakers in China to sustain that strategy, right, because you know. Their argument is that you know, even with a small opening, you're going to see why right, the the entire country will have to face this, you know, devastating consequences, right? The, the healthcare system being overwhelmed, you know, and this fear-induced behavior is going to also have, you know, implications for social political instability, right? Even having impact on regime, right? Uh, legitimacy. Right, so you know that it's that feel, right, of this worst case scenario, you know, that the prevents the country from pivoting away from zero COVID. But you know, I, I do believe, right, that, that this is a decision you have to make. Right, you have this is the, the short term pain you have to uh, endure. Uh, but uh, you could, you know, undertake measures to mitigate this what is inevitable. Right? Like uh, you know, administering mRNA vaccines as booster shots, right? uh, having the uh, effective antiviral drugs available to the population, right? and educating the Chinese public, you know, on the real threat posed by the Omicron variant. Right? Uh, these are, I think, all necessary right, in order to mitigate you know the consequences of a future uh, Omicron outbreak. Well, against this backdrop, uh, China's economy is slowing. And most people um, who study in this field feel that just uh, concentrating on boosting consumption in the middle class will not allow China to create the kind of growth it would like to have on a continued basis, which means the poorer people will also need to get more services. And healthcare for the poor in China is not very good. So what do you think, what kind of services, what kind of um, innovations could help at that lower tier in order to create more, more common prosperity, telemedicine, better nutrition? What do you think the tools are that should be used to make China's population more healthy overall? Well, when we you know, talk about by this segment of the population right, that are disadvantaged, that are marginalized, you know, they are certainly are also by the vulnerable by to the um, new variants. And so, you know, I think it is important to make sure by this group of the population had that 
uh, adequate right health care right covered by the adequate health care insurance right in the meantime create job opportunities for this segment of population my Concern in terms of the economic impact of the zero COVID strategy is that you know the uh, according to uh, um, and Cha right this the uh, um, uh, this technological you know, firm you know basically they talk about now by in two thousand twenty one particular right you have you know, more small businesses basically. Out of business, right? Then there's you know, the, the, the small business actually open their business. Right? This is much, you know, like a, like a dramatic difference from 2020 when you have like more small business right, open than those who are closed down. And so, you know, I think really, right, the, it is time, but this is why we also say it's important, right, to uh, have a, to consider at introducing more flexibility to the zero covid strategy you know which you know essentially is now a by all means at all cost approach you know very often we fail to take into account this you know, uh tremendous you know, social economic cost right, uh, by pursuing such a strategy and in China, it's not just COVID and communicable disease, but also non-communicable diseases, as in this country, have not been probably treated as effectively um, because of the concentration on, on uh, containment. What about um, the incidence of diabetes and lung cancer in China? I think there are more diabetic patients in China than in any place in the world. Yeah, well, if you also, if you consider like those uh, pre-diabetes population, you know, we're talking about probably half the population, right? Wow, uh, that's amazing. All right. Uh, the, uh, um, yeah, the non-communicable diseases we call the NCDs uh, leading killer in China, right? The each year, right? The millions of people died of the NCDs, you know, and their risk factors. If you talk about like, uh, you, you know, this, Air pollution, for example, each year more than one million people died of air pollution, right? More than one million people died of you know tobacco smoking, right? Uh, this just just you consider this too, right? That this two million people died right annually because of that, right? Uh, and, and I think if we could just spend ten percent of these you know resources. And energy, right? Um, NCD control, right? I mean, ten percent of this energy we spend on the zero COVID you know, strategy, and then on the NCD prevention and control, you're going to save more lives, right? Uh, but I think you know this. There's certainly there's no data, you know, you know, showing what the, you know this kind of second order problems by the zero COVID strategy is creating. Because right? many people right, who are suffering NCDs uh, simply cannot have access to healthcare because of the lockdown measures or, you know, you know afraid of going to the hospitals for fear of being like, infected, right? So, you know, you're going to see, by, you know, I think almost 100% by the increase of the NCD cost of death. Cardiovascular China. disease as well. Exactly. All of that. Mm-hmm. This is the number one, you know, cause mm-hmm. of death 
in the country. Uh, if you look at the 2021, the mortality data, right, uh, compared to 2020, there was like an extra death of six, uh, 165,000. Know, that is very hard to explain why this is such a significant increase of the surplus death. You know, and I suspect that might have something to do with this extra NCD, a non-communicable diseases caused of death. Well, one of the policy responses to this has been price controls on drugs and medical devices in China that have been really severe. 50, 90 percent cuts have been um, asked, uh, asked of those companies. Can both not just foreign companies, but can Chinese domestic companies afford to take on this burden of, of cost control and also, what will that do to future innovation? If they're just struggling to survive, how are they going to have money for R&D? Or is R&D going to move from the private sector completely to the government sector in China? And what does that mean for the future? Well, the, the government has, well, since 2018, they have uh, set up a new agency, right? Uh, uh, basically. Um, uh, pool those healthcare insurance funds, you know, so that uh, you know they're in a better position to negotiate with you know the uh, the foreign pharmaceuticals, you know, for those you know, most effective, you know, usually also patented drugs, you know, that in the hope you know this is going to lower the cost right of uh, uh, the uh, the medicines right, um, to make them more available but to the Chinese population, you know, and. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, I, I think uh, um, the, the, now the, the one of the challenges that now in many localities you know, that uh, they have used those healthcare insurance funds to support right uh, the vaccines of administration, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, potential also cover the uh, the mass testing you know cost. And so they're already in some of the localities, you know, they're reporting, right, that this, the, this potential, right, the, uh, this the uh, overdrafting of the health insurance uh, funds, you know, at the, the local level. You know. So, you know, I don't know to what extent this is going to affect the health care status of the Chinese population. In the long run, it's got to be negative. It, it, it needs to. Now, over the past year or so, China has... Um, been in a frenzy of new regulatory um, issuances. It's really hard to keep track of all the new regulations. And different industries, as you know, have been targeted, uh, tutoring, for example, and all kinds of online activities. Do you think, as it, some people believe, that healthcare will be the next target of the regulators in China? Well, you know, this is a sector, right, that... Uh, it's already right. It's already <laughs> regulated, right? Regulated, yeah. You know, but when we talk about, it, I think by regulation you are talking about those non-state actors, right? Those that you know, uh, you know, this, this so-called non-public, uh, you know, healthcare uh, industries, right? The for time, and most of the uh, a large percentage of those, you know, so-called minbai, right? The, the hospitals, by right? non public hospitals, they're controlled you know, by, you know, like uh, uh, farmers in Putian, you know, of, uh, of Fujian province, you know, and the non-state uh, uh, 
the problem with the, the non-public hospitals that the people continue to have the, the uh, uh, problems of trusting right, those the healthcare services they provided uh, the um, um, and the service that the sector they have been um, uh, provide the services they have been providing also tend to be uh, uh, narrow, right? There's limited to, you know, to only you know, like certain services, you know, like uh, you know the, uh, the, uh, uh, like skin diseases, right? The, um, uh, the Providing like fertility, you know the uh infer- this this treating infertility, um, the reputations continue to be a problem, um, and now uh, certainly with this, this zero COVID right this 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 outbreak, the show actually um in a way highlight the importance of the state sector, you know so. Uh, I expect uh, you know that uh, um, it's potentially uh, there could be you know, more regulation on the the, the, the non-state mm-hmm. to regulate the non-state sectors. So, will this? Uh, I wonder if there are any figures. What percentage of healthcare in China is public versus private, and is it moving towards com- be, being completely public or state-owned or? You know, as as it seems, much of of uh, China's private enterprise seems to be becoming party capitalism, right? Well, if you just look at the numbers, right, that it's more than half of those hospitals are owned by the non-public sectors. Okay, but if you look at the services they provided, right, the the states, you know, this the, the public sector continue to have this commanding high. You know that, uh, uh, in a way, also by indirectly supports the argument, right? That that uh, this non-state, non-public, you know, sector continue to have, you know, this the um, the problems of attracting, you know, the the uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the effective demand, you know, and uh, to win the trust of the people in the country. What about this? Um... Healthy China 2030 program. What do you make of that, and what are its goals? Well, the Healthy 2030, I think it was launched in um, 2015, 2016. Right, they uh, they want to, you know, basically, right, significantly improve the healthcare standards of the Chinese people improve their average life expectancy, you know, to a level you know, that is close to those, you know, uh, in the developed world, you know, also want to uh, uh, significantly uh, reduce by the, the disease burden of non-communicable diseases, right? Uh, so it is quite an ambitious project, but, uh, you know, I think <laughs> over the past two or three years, and maybe because of that, uh, this concern about the COVID nineteen now seems to be rarely mentioned in the policy circle. Looking also longer term, I did some quick calculations looking at UN population figures, and if China's worst case scenario plays out and America's best case scenario plays out, it's possible that the United States could have a larger population than China by the year 2100. My question is, how how can the three-child policy 
affect this outcome? And do you think it has a realistic chance of succeeding? Well, you know, I'm not a demographer, but my understanding is that, you know, the uh, China is indeed, you know, facing a, a um, demographic crisis because, you know, the couples who do not simply want to have more kids, right? So, you know, even though the government relaxed, right, that is the, um, the uh, population control policy allowing first couples to have the second child, you know, now the third child, right, uh, that uh, I think is still not sufficient to convince by right, the, the uh, uh, young couples to have more kids. This is essentially an incentive problem, you know, the, uh, simply because the cost of raising a child is just way too, uh, it's in a way prohibitively high uh, to most couples. Uh, the uh, so you know they have problem. You know the, the the argument is that if you have problems convincing by right, the the uh, uh, couples to have a second child, right? Simply relaxing, right? That the the population control to allow a third child doesn't make any sense, right? So you know that uh, I think that the pronatalist policy you have to include uh, incentives, you know, other funds. Right. Well, those it's hard to imagine what those incentives would be other than fiscal stimulus of some kind. One thing I wanted to ask you about, since you're a professor, is what grade you would give the international institutions that are supposed to coordinate health in a health crisis? What is your view on the WHO? And what do you think should be done so that we don't have another pandemic? What it, as a political scientist looking at this, what are the right? What what's the this global institutional problem? Do we need a new WHO or something else in order for better communications at least to happen? Well, I think uh, you know we need uh, <laughs> uh, no matter you you like it or not, we need international agency right to coordinate you know, the global response to public health emergencies, international concern, like a pandemic. So, you know, that uh, if there's no, there was no WHO, we have to reinvent it anyway. I think uh, the uh, if uh, you look at the, the, uh, the performance of the international health agency, you know, they have done a lot of things, uh, good things. You know, they have uh, um, been, right, the... Uh, uh, sharing information you know, on the uh, sequence of the uh, the pathogen, they have uh, uh, also right they keep uh, you know the uh, uh, countries updated right on the uh, the, the, the the developments right uh, uh, the trajectory of the uh, spread of the COVID nineteen. They have announced right the. Uh, the COVID nineteen as a global pandemic, you know, they have played a uh, important role right, in uh, supporting right the, the uh, Covax pillar right to ensure the global equitable access to the uh, COVID vaccines. But in the meantime, I think we have to also keep in mind right WHO is not a supranational agency, right? It's not a world government. It's a member state organization, right? So uh, it's 
if you look at the structure of the, the decision making, it's the World Health uh, Assembly, the WHO, that is executive body, but decision making body of the organization. Right, so member states have an important say, but in the decision process, you know, so that uh, relationship with member states also explain why, you know, many times, you know, WHO, you know, have to. Right, um, uh, the, 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 um, listen to the member states, you know, in, on issues like declaring the public health emergence of international concern, right? Uh, that they happened certainly during the COVID-19 pandemic, but that is not the first time. It also happened during the Ebola outbreak. Right? Uh, it, you have no independent intelligence gathering capability. So you had to rely on the member states to collect the uh, disease-related information. You know that? But uh, I do believe right, that the leadership is very important. Right? Sometimes, right, uh, as we saw right, in the uh, 2002-2003, the SARS outbreak, when you have a very um, uh, independent uh, uh, WHO head, you know, who is uh, committed, right, who's determined, right, to um, have a, a, a strong WHO vis-a-vis uh, -vis member states, you know, they have this certain leverage you know, that uh, is in, um, in, the ha in the hands of the WHO head, you know, like the naming and the shaming, you know, that could be a leverage, right? Uh, against member states, uh, uh, so that they become uh, more cooperative, right, in sharing information, uh, in complying with the international health regulations. You know that is the only international law governing the infectious disease outbreaks internationally. Uh, so you know, there's um, um. Uh, there's room, you know. I think uh, the WHO can improve. You know uh, that hopefully, you know, this this the, we could, in a way, with this negotiation of the new uh, uh, pandemic treaty or revising the international health regulations, you know, the uh, we're going to see a, a WHO that is more nimble, that is more independent and more effective. And that brings me to China's role in global health leadership. And you have a new report that you headed um, out of the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and China's global health leadership, which is available at the CFR.org website. Can you tell us about the conclusions of, of your report, of your group's report? That report was the, the writing, was the, actually started, the, the, I started writing in, um, February 2021, that was last year, you know, when actually China just started to kick off its uh, vaccine diplomacy. Uh, so, you know, that the, uh, I, you know, I began to think about these questions like, you know, um, what did China want to accomplish? Right? Uh, what does that mean, you know, for China's soft power, international image management? It's global health leadership status. Uh, and over time, you know, um, I think uh, uh, there's certain um, 
preliminary conclusions can be drawn. Right? This is just, I said preliminary because that's an ongoing process. But it appears that, uh, uh, first of all, if you look at the China's uh, the uh, uh, pandemic response model, right? That this zero COVID strategy, right? As it epitomized, uh, it appears to draw less reverence internationally. You know, we are, uh, I think, in the two thousand and um, early two thousand one twenty one. Uh, 2020 and 2021, you see the you know like uh, you know Chinese pandemic response model you know, draw you know a lot of envy you know, and uh, admiration internationally, but then you know, with the rising social and economic cost and with other countries are moving away from that strategy, I think uh, that model uh, is become uh, becoming uh, less respected internationally. Right. And secondly, even though China is the first mover in terms of mask diplomacy and vaccine diplomacy, it is still the largest vaccine exporter in the world. But it would be misleading to say China is a leader of providing global public goods, because by definition, the global public goods should be uh, non-exclusive and non-rival, right? But uh, you know now when we look at the vaccine delivery, right? The ninety percent of the vaccines actually are for sale, right? Uh, the uh, uh, and uh, certainly right now with this rapid decline of the efficacy rate of the Chinese vaccine and against the new Omicron variant, right? This this uh, concern you know, that uh, this this Chinese vaccines may become less popular internationally. You know, there's even some people suggest that may lead potentially a global rejection of the Chinese vaccines. What's the issue in global healthcare that worries you most right now? What do you worry about waking up in the morning and seeing a headline, and that's the thing that you'd like to work to prevent? Well, I think now, since we are still in the pandemic, right? So right. I think it will. Everybody hopes, right, that this pandemic is going to. Uh, be in training retreat, and then we're going to, our life is going to be back to normal, right? Even though that means we have to uh, coexist with the virus, right? I think that the worst case scenario is that next day we woke up, you know, finding that we are facing another new variant. Right. That is uh, <laughs> highly, not just a highly <laughs> transmissible, even though actually even more like, uh, you know, the dangerous by right, then the current variant, you know, and these current vaccines are, you know, even less effective, you know, against this new variant, you know, then you know, really, you know, we have a big problem. We have a big problem. Well, Yunjung, thank you so much for your insights. This, I, there's probably no more critical is, issue that faces all of us than global health. And I'm so glad that you're working on it. Are you working on a new book now? What, what's next for you after after well, toxic thinking, politics, yeah, yeah. Well, this the uh, you know I, I I'm thinking writing another book. You know, maybe uh, going to focus on China's the uh, 
interaction with the outside world by using the uh, the pandemic, you know, as sort of a, and a Chinese pandemic response and its uh, role in the global pandemic response, you know, to sort of as a case uh, to um, explain how that relationship has transformed. You know, I I recently read a paper that said, although we have, obviously, there's tension between the U.S. and China now, that scientific cooperation and projects have actually increased in volume, as has investment by companies in, in China. Maybe the politics and the talk is might be different than the walk of what's really going on. I hope so, at any rate. So um, what's your Twitter handle so people can follow you, and where can they find you on the web? Well, my Twitter handle is very simple. It's my name, like Yan Zhong Huang. Okay. Yeah. It's, you can easily find my uh, Twitter handle by just typing my name, but just, okay. just uh, without the, the space between the two. <laughs> well, we'll we'll include that in the podcast notes as well um, as your expert page on the Council on Foreign Relations website it has many of the publications that you've contributed there. So I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today on this very critical topic. Really appreciate it. And also thank you to the people behind the scenes who make EconView possible, managing editor Ying Zan and our producer Sam Fu. And please visit our website to sign up for alerts about our next podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Larry. Thank you.